0: Welcome to another episode of the Beyond the Fence podcast. My name is Ben Quayata, as always, and today I am writing solo because I honestly don't think anyone in my immediate uh, circle of podcasting friends would be willing to sit through the absolute goof feast that is about to occur. The Detroit Pistons have won the NBA draft lottery. Play that music. There's no music gonna be played. I'm not that much of an editor. Um, but yes, for the first time in franchise history, a franchise that dates back to the nineteen like forties when they were in Fort Wayne, Indiana, for the first time in the lottery era, the Detroit Pistons have moved up. They've always either stayed at their slot or more times than I care to count, gone down. Um, and being jumped by other teams. The most notable example of that being the 2014 NBA draft, where um, as a consequence of the trade that got rid of Ben Gordon from the Pistons after he signed a um, a pretty bloated free agent contract at the time, uh, everyone thought he was going to work out all right, you know, some shooting for the team, but yes, the Pistons paid the Charlotte uh, Hornets, Bobcats, whatever they were back then, uh, they paid them a first-round pick just to get rid of him. Um, that was protected. I think it was top uh, eight, and the pick ended up going ninth. Or well, it was th- th- Cleveland moved up and drafted Andrew Wiggins. They won the lottery from like low odds, and then as a result, the Pistons lost their pick that year. It ended up being Noah Vonleh, so it wasn't that big a deal. Um, it was a pretty weak draft in the end. Ironically, that was the year that they drafted Spencer Dinwiddie, who's probably. One of the best players they have drafted in the last decade. Obviously didn't work out for the Pistons. Ended up finding a home in Brooklyn. Same with guys like Chris Middleton, who obviously was a second rounder. But yes, I think we have finally got a couple of years in a row of drafting legitimate franchise pieces that will be around the franchise for years to come. So let's just start with a recap of what happened last draft. So the Pistons didn't win the lottery, they picked 7th, and it's a range that they've picked for pretty much the last decade, honestly. Um, they've made the playoffs twice since 2010, both times being the 8th seed in the Eastern Conference, and the um, in 2015, when they win the playoffs, they ended up picking 18th for Henry Ellenson, and then a few years ago, they were 15th as the worst playoff team, and ended up with Seku Dumbuya who... You know, Jury's still out. He's bit up and down. He hasn't had a consistent run or a consistent roll. But last year, uh, the Pistons picked seventh uh, and ended up with Killian Hayes, the point guard out of France, the American-born point guard. Um, also made a couple of moves well publicised. They traded away four second-round picks to Brooklyn, um, sorry, to L.A. in a trade that also sent Bruce Brown to Brooklyn and Luke Canard to L.A., to the Clippers, ended up with Cedric Bay at 19, who ended up making all rookie first team. So you'd say that trade's worked out pretty well. And also trading for the 16th pick in that draft to get Isaiah Stewart from the Houston Rockets, who was all rookie second team. So a pretty good draft for Troy Weaver's first year. Troy Weaver coming, Troy Weaver coming from that Oklahoma City franchise that's kind of known for drafting and play development. Um, Starting to really imprint his style on the Pistons. But that doesn't matter because they have executed the perfect tank. It has to be said. So here's my view on tanking. I think it's been apparent for a few years now that the Pistons have needed this full reset, I want to call it. And in all of the press conferences when Troy Lee was asked about this, he won't call it a rebuild, he'll call it a restoration. Um, he likes to, you know, refer to how the Pistons have had these great championship teams from the past. Um, and he's not rebuilding, he's restoring something great. And that started in the last draft where they got uh, Hayes, Bay, Stewart, Saban, Lee in the second round. Um, got rid of a lot of these, well, I mean, any everyone on the team from two years ago has now gone except for Sekou Dumbuya. Blake Griffin was the second last one, but he's got rid of, you know, Andre Drummond's left the team, Luke Kennard's left the team, they don't want to pay him, Bruce Brown's left the team, Reggie Jackson's gone, um, you know, really ushering in this new young era and the f- first proper rebuild that the team has had, you know, really since 2004, they've never really tried to start from scratch, even when it was apparent that the team wasn't going anywhere, they've always tried a soft rebuild on the fly. Uh, And it's never really worked out, you know, drafting guys for need when they were very clearly a broken team, heading nowhere, you know, stuck in mediocrity. Um, But then winning the, sorry, then last season, they obviously tried away all their guys. They really just put the faith in the kids, you know. Killian Hayes was the starting point guard, obviously getting hurt seven games in didn't help, but, you know. Sadiq Bey having a big role, Isaiah Stewart emerging out of nowhere and being a starting quality center in this league, taking flyers on guys like Josh Jackson, Dennis Smith Jr., Hamadou Diallo, real, you know, buy low guys. They might have ever paid for Dennis Smith Jr. by giving up Derek Rose and maybe not getting, you know, a decent pick back. You know, it was a second rounder. But just the general mantra of these buy low swings, effectively, because, what the team has needed is a refresh of talent. They've never been viewed around the league as a team that has had an immense like an immensely talented stable of core young guys and signing Jeremy Grant, convincing him that he was the centerpiece. Mason Plumlee turned out to be a shrewd acquisition, but then yeah, building around all these young guys, just hoarding young guys, not to the extent of Oklahoma City, but really showing this youth movement. And it was never an overt tank when you watch the team play, because they competed every single night. They were never, well, they were blown out occasionally, but they were in a lot of games, which was the most promising sign because the young guys were competitive, but they were still losing games. But they were losing with the young guys. They weren't losing with vets, or they weren't, you know, picking up extra cheap wins to get them, you know, to like a, a ninth or tenth seed, and, you know, lottery mediocrity again they were losing with these young guys, really playing big roles. But they weren't losing by 20 every night, like the Oklahoma City Thunder, by the end of the season, or, you know, like Houston during their long losing streak. They were losing, I don't want to say losing the right way, because there never really is a, a right way to lose. But by putting the minutes on the young guys, they allowed them to play through the mistakes, to learn what it was like to win together, all going through the same process, and then you get to add, presumably, um, Cade Cunningham into that mix, but we'll get to that in a second. When you get to add that guy to a team that's already gone through this one year of growing pains together, it looks like a really promising season upcoming. I'm not saying they're going to be, you know, Eastern Conference finalists or anything like that. But I definitely think, you know, in year two of this roster and this core group playing together, it is going to be a very, very competitive team. Um, You know, and you add the star power of the presumed number one pick. Um, And with that being said, let's talk about him. Let's talk about Cade Cunningham. I don't pretend uh, to be a college basketball expert. Um, It's just, it is what it is, like, It's not that accessible. The time zone here, being middle of the day anyway, already makes it hard to watch, or any uh, American basketball really, whether it's college or pro. But also, it's it's not that readily broadcast, and especially like I know he's number one pick, but even that being said, and like he was the banner prospect coming out of his high school class, ESPN isn't really going to be showing a lot of Oklahoma State games down here. but if we just run through his vitals, he's a six-foot-eight, 220-pound guard. Um, basically, was playing as the point guard for Oklahoma State. He had a usage rate of 29.1% uh, and a turnover percentage of 18.7%. Now, if we look at his strengths, and I'm going to refer to the mock draft, sorry, the uh, scouting profile on mbadraft.net, Cade Cunningham is a three level scorer at the college level anyway. You know, he's a matchup nightmare. He's six foot eight, two hundred and twenty pounds, right? So he's already got the length and the size. You know, if you put a smaller guy on him, he's going to have the strength and size advantage to either post them up and shoot over them. Um or to just, you know, bully them and get straight to the room. They're not going to be able to stay in front of him and stop him from getting to the spots that he wants and making those plays, whether it is passing or scoring for himself. You put a bigger guy on him, and he's got that presumed speed advantage, and he's not the most explosive athlete anyway, but if you do end up defending him with a a standard NBA 2 or 3 man, um, he's going to have that ball-handling ability to be able to get around them and get to his spots. So basically he creates this matchup nightmare, and you've seen it more and more over the last few seasons where the league has trended towards bigger point guards. Obviously, uh, Luka Doncic is the big example. He's a six-nine point guard who can get to anywhere he wants. Um, and that's actually the comparison they've used for <laughs> Cade, is Luka Doncic, who's not known as an athlete, but has the skill level to pretty much do whatever he wants on the court has the size to see over defenders and read passing lanes and get the ball to shooters in the corner on the weak side. Um, Cunningham is very unselfish. He only averages three and a half assists a game. Um, But a lot of that I've also seen has been because of his willingness to pass the ball. He also averages a high turnover rate. And that's a worry, I think, at the college level coming into the NBA. But you can make, I don't want to say excuses for it, because four turnovers a game in 35 minutes is still a high number. But there's the obvious gap in the quality of players that he's playing with at Oklahoma State compared to when he's going to come into the NBA. There's the element of you know being too unselfish at times, and then you've just got the, you know, he's a young guy, he's 19 years old, throwing passes that probably are ill-advised, trying to make the right play and forcing the ball into tight windows where there probably isn't a lane. So a lot of that is just experience over anything. Um, I'm not too concerned about that. And the great thing about Cunningham is that with his size, he doesn't have to play on the ball straight away coming into the NBA. I don't think uh, Dwayne Casey is going to, assuming the Pistons draft him, um, I don't think Cunningham is going to be forced into the lead creator role straight away because you've got Killian Hayes, who has a year of NBA ball under his belt, who has shown excellent playmaking play ability in his own right. You've got these guys who can create secondary offense, you know, Jeremy Grant, Sadiq Bay, Josh Jackson. So whether Cunningham starts or comes off the bench, he's always going to have another guy that can help take that load off him straight away. And it's going to really allow him to just settle into that role and be almost like a dual playmaking force with whoever they play him with, whether it is uh, Killian Hayes or whether he comes off the bench um, as the bench point guard with guys like Josh Jackson, Hamadou Diallo, you know, whoever they end up putting him with in whatever unit. Obviously, with his size, he's an excellent rebounder. He averaged six rebounds a game, um, and with that comes the obvious... Transition opportunity, the grab-and-go style of play that, you know, if you look at Ben Simmons, who I know he's had a lot of criticism lately for his playoff performance, but if you just look at the style of play at 6'10", just grabs the rebound and pushes it up the court. Um, you know, doesn't have to waste that three or four seconds finding his point guard. He can just take the ball and go. It's what makes guys like James Harden so effective. Um, Russell Westbrook, that one-man fast-break ability. And that just, the Pistons played fast anyway last year. They like to push the ball up. And they like to run with guys like Sadiq Bey, with Sekou Doumbouya, with Josh Jackson, Hamadou Diallo. They really changed their athletic profile over the last 12 months. Because if you looked at the stable of wings that the Pistons had at the end of 2019-20, you had guys like Luke Kennard, who is not um, a transition player. Uh, I can't remember who else they had. I just <laughs> you had guys like High Luke, who wasn't a transition player. Well, he wasn't a, you know, a run-and-gun transition player. He could pull up to three, but he wasn't really that transition threat to stretch defences and get them turning and tired out. And Tadiq Bain, in a way, isn't that either, but Jeremy Grant definitely is. Josh Jackson definitely is. Hamadou Diallo absolutely is, 100%, one of the best athletes in the league. And by adding that guy who can get and go... You just open up a lot of easy opportunities um, because you have you know Cunningham who can rebound it well. Mason Plumlee is a good transition passer, an outlet passer. And you just really change the way teams have to defend you because they have to be constantly running back to chase the transition opportunities. Uh, as a shooter, Cunningham went into his college season somewhat unknown Especially, you know, when we talk about shooting, we obviously always talk about uh, what we mean is his three-point shooting. Uh, Ended up shooting 40% from three. And yes, it's the college three, so it's slightly shorter than the NBA three. But a 40% sample from the three-point line with uh, the volume that he shot it at, you know, nearly six attempts a game. um, he, He shot 155 threes over his 27 games at Oklahoma State. So it's not a small sample size. He's hitting 40% of his threes uh, with, you know, not one a game, like just complete stand stand and shoot. Um, he's effective reading the screens and then, you know, guys going under him. He has the ability to hit that three that guys can't go under him exactly. They have to respect it. And obviously if they go over the screen, then he's got the size to, to pin guys on his back, you know, the way people like Harden do or Trey Young or uh, Devin Booker, where they'll call for the on-ball pick-and-roll and and the defender really fights over the screen, but then they get caught on the backside of the offensive player. And then once you're on the backside of an offensive player, you're really at their mercy because they can just position you wherever they want. Um, And they're not going to get called for an offensive foul unless it's a really egregious shove out of the way. But by defending from behind, you are 99% either going to give up a decent shot in the lane. If the big man pushes up to cover you, then you've got the easy drop-off or lob pass to your rolling big, which Isaiah Stewart definitely is, or you're going to foul. So it creates an absolute nightmare in the pick-and-roll game if you don't know how to defend a guy off the screen because he's got that shooting ability where he probably won't, trans- uh, he probably won't translate into a 40% three-point shooter straight away in the NBA. That's very unlikely. Um that a college point guard w- with that sort of volume who came into the season with shooting doubts, it's highly unlikely that he's going to shoot the light out straight away. He might. It's possible, but it is unlikely. But even just by having that possibility, it really maximizes your effectiveness. And he's shown the willingness to shoot it as well, so he's not going to be passive, which is always important. Because if you make the defense defend you, as basic as it sounds, not only are you opening up your own offensive game, but then you've got one of the best corner three-point shooters in the league already, I think it's fair to say, in Sadiq Bay, You've got Josh Jackson and Jeremy Grant and Sekou uh, Dumbuya, who have all shown proficiency cutting and finding the dunker spot or finding that little gap in the defense to get to make themselves available and get their point guards out of trouble. So you really open up this multitude of offensive potential not only for yourself but for other guys as well because once defenses are focused on you then yes you have with the passing ability that Cade has um you know you've got that opportunity to really make plays for you guys uh defensively he has the size obviously at 6-8 to project as a plus defender uh, at the next level issues about his lateral quickness might hinder him straight away, Um, especially in a point guard's the most talented position in the NBA, and you've got a lot of guys who are canny at drawing fouls or the the handling ability, you know, lateral quickness is when you're isolated out on the perimeter, it's going to be key. But with his size, he can trap effectively, he can defend in the post, um, and he offers the switch potential if they do try and switch uh, him onto a bigger guy than then takes him down to the post. He's got the size where he's not going to be an easy beat. He at least can fight and still make it relatively tough for the opposition player. Um, He's got good hands, you know, over a steal and nearly a block per game. Uh, From a point guard, that's that's elite. Um, uh, And the last bit of his strengths (coughs) excuse me, I wanted to touch on is just his mentality. So 84% free throw shooter, but not only that, appears to want the ball in his hands late in the game. Um, Had a couple of occasions at OK State where, you know, he really took over. Um, And yes, obviously that free throw shooting also highlights his potential as a shooter. Uh, Now before we move on to the weaknesses, um, just again want to reiterate, This is courtesy of the great work that NBADraft.net do. Uh, This draft profile is by Jory Nixon from uh, May. But yes, his weaknesses. Um, Obviously, when you are the number one overall pick, your weakness profile is going to be a a fair bit smaller. But I think the main weakness with Cunningham is just his physical, uh, his athleticism, his his juice, as they like to call it. Um, We've already mentioned his lateral quickness. He's not exactly a track meet athlete. You know, his transition value will come in for getting the rebound and pushing it up the court and his passing ability is not going to be a guy who's gonna wow you with amazing finishes. Um, you know, with his feats of athleticism, he's not gonna be, you know, the the Donovan Mitchell style, the Russell Westbrook, you know, style grab and go transition, he's not gonna be that guy. Um, And then obviously we've talked about his turnover percentages and his passing ability. While he is a very good passer, he makes good decisions. Um, As with any young point guy, probably guilty at times of going for the big play or forcing passes where there isn't really a lane. Uh, And then, yeah, again, with the athleticism, just more of a a below-the-rim style player, especially when you get it down into a half-court set. So he's not really going to be creating off the bounce for himself with athleticism. It's going to be more his guile and his ball handling ability. Now, I don't want to speak too long. You know, I don't want to go for an hour just talking about the Pistons and, you know, Cade Cunningham. But I think I w- did want to touch on, I guess, the roster moving forward. So I'm just on spot track now having a look at the team's status going into next season. So Killian, obviously all the rookies from last year are signed through. Killian Hayes, uh, Sadiq Bay. Davida Savidas, Saban Lee, Isaiah Stewart, they're all fine. Mason Plumlee signed through, Jeremy Grant, obviously. Jalil Okafor is on the roster next year. Sekou Doumbuya, uh, Josh Jackson. That is all the guaranteed players. Corey Joseph is due 12 million, or $12.5 million next season. Of that, only $2.5 million is guaranteed. I think with the the youth of the roster still as is, um, it's probably worth having that veteran point guard around just a, as that mentor to Killian, to Saban, to to Cade if he comes in. <laughs> um, I'm a Pistons fan. Forgive me for not still not believing it exactly, that it's going to happen. Because, you know, this is the franchise that drafted Darko Milicic over Camelo Anthony, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade. So, you know, just... Feet on the ground here, Um, but yeah, I can see the a path to bringing Corey Joseph back, um, even if the price is somewhat high. Dennis Smith Jr. is a restricted free agent. I don't really see the value in him coming back. They took a flyer on him, but I think now with the depth and the youth at the point guard spot, I don't really see a path to him coming back on the roster. Uh, Tyler Cook. Is also unguaranteed next season. He's cheap as, I don't really, like, it's inconsequential what happens with him. Uh, Wayne Ellington is an unrestricted free agent. He's the type of guy that young point guards love playing with because he gets open and he shoots on sight. So he's really good at bailing out his point guard by finding the open spot. So much like Joseph, um, I can see a path to him coming back, although he is unrestricted, so it might be a tougher get to get him back because he will be on the market. Uh, Saban Lee is actually a restrictive reagent, I'm sorry, because he's a second-round pick. So he'll go through the qualifying offer process. I don't expect him to not be back next season purely because of the fact that he's still very young and he showed a lot of promise being forced into probably more minutes than he would have expected coming in as a second-round pick. Obviously, the Pistons didn't have their G League franchise last season either. So a lot of the guys that would have spent time in the G League, you know, Saban Lee, probably Sekou Dumbuya, maybe even Killian Hayes and Isaiah Stewart, they were forced into minutes that probably wouldn't have been there in a normal, non-COVID-affected season. But Saban Lee was the biggest surprise performer considering his draft slot. So I don't really see a reason why he wouldn't come back. The only other uh, person not signed through next season is Hamadou Diallo. Now, this one's interesting. I really, really want to see him back because he showed so much. He is the perfect guy to have with these passing threats like Killian Hayes and Cade Cunningham. Because of his, of his athleticism, he's an excellent defender. He plays very hard, and he's developing a really nice offensive game outside of just dunking it. Um, he's still an inconsistent shooter, but I think with his development as a three-point threat and his athleticism and his defense and his transition game, he's an absolute dream for a guy like Cade Cunningham coming in or Killian Hayes coming in, uh, or going to year two, sorry. But where Cunningham fits in, obviously, as the first overall pick, um, he will abide by the rookie scale contract for the next four years. So for an reference, Killian Hayes last year, his first year, was worth $5.3 million. The first overall pick with a rising salary cap, as always, uh, it's probably going to be around the nine million dollar mark for this year. If we look at Anthony Edwards as a reference point, while I get this up, this is really unprofessional, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, the rookie scale contract means he's under that team control for at least two years, but you know, usually four years. Um, yeah, so Anthony Edwards' base salary was nine point seven million last season, um, and then it's over just over ten million this year. So, considering a rising salary cap, it probably won't rise too much, but Cunningham's figure will be probably a little bit higher than that. So, it'll be around that you know, $10 million mark. The Pistons don't really have any big earners. Obviously, Jeremy Grant is due $20 million a year for the next couple of years, but Corey Joseph can be cut if they are worried about the money. Other than that, they've got a, a lot of low earners. the The main issue is Blake Griffin's dead money. From the when they let him go, he's on the book, on the salary cap figure for 29 million, going into this season. It it runs out after this year, but that is going to be quite restrictive. So maybe they will be forced to uh, cut someone like Corey Joseph, who's due to make 12 million if it's guaranteed, in order to accommodate Cade Cunningham's rookie salary for this year without venturing into potential. Tax ramifications, which I'm not going to get into because I haven't properly looked at all that sort of stuff yet, and I don't really want to talk about that today. I'm just I want to keep this light and happy. Um, but as a point guard group, in, t- in general, um, yeah, like I said, Dennis Smith Jr. I would be very surprised if he returns. You're looking at Killian Hayes, uh, Kate Cunningham, and Saban Lee. With Cunningham's versatility and being able to play two and maybe even small forward coming in, um, I, I still see a lot of value in keeping Corey Joseph around. One person I forgot, actually, sorry, Frank Jackson, who really, really showed something at the end of last year when he got his opportunity as well. A bit like Saban Lee, probably would have spent a lot of time in the G League with the occasional you know, minute uh, spot duty here and there in the big time. But he came in in the last probably 20 games or so, 20, 30 games. He played regular minutes. He was often on the floor at the end of games as a closer, which really showed the value and the trust that Dwayne Casey and the team had in him. He was an absolute flamethrower. He shot the ball a lot, and he shot it with a reasonable percentage. Um, he always played hard, which is all that you can really ask for from a guy fighting for opportunity. He's an unrestricted free agent this year, which is going to make it tough to keep him. But in 40 games for the Pistons, that he started six of them, but nearly 10 points a game, shooting over 40% from three on nearly four attempts a game, in only 18 minutes. So if you extrapolate that to the per 36 numbers, he's taking seven threes per 36 minutes at 40%, or 41% almost, and 19 points a game. Really that, I guess, that younger version of Wayne Ellington, where he's in the game just to score and to hustle, and really just take the open three and, you know, shoot on sight almost, and be that release valve for his point guards if they ever get in trouble, and that end of shot clock option. Um... He probably priced himself out of the Pistons' range, returning, given the fact that they have now won the first overall pick. Again, unless they decide to cut Corey Joseph uh, and Rodney Magruder, who's also also unguaranteed for next year. I'd say Magruder's definitely gone. But my hesitancy for letting Joseph go is the fact that I don't want a a point guard group of total uh, rookies and second-year guys. Um, with Killian Hayes, Saban Lee, and Kate Cunningham. So that's my logic for keeping Corey Joseph around, despite the fact that he's probably going to earn $12 I still don't think this team is anywhere near a a tax team, so I don't think that should worry them too much. They'll probably be a bit more quiet in free agency this time than they were last year. We didn't expect them to be busy last year, because we didn't think they had enough room, and then they totally blindsided us by signing and trading for Jeremy Grant, and then also getting Mason Plumlee. Uh, And Josh Jackson. But yes, Troy Weaver, if nothing else has shown that he is, to borrow his words, always firing, the the clip will be empty. Um, So you don't know what moves he's going to make, but that's what I would do personally. I don't think they can go into the season, if they're serious about play development, with just a bunch of point guards who have a combined, you know, well, they're all one year into the league or haven't played in the NBA before. But I don't think that uh, uh, Troy Weaver will do that. I do think Corey Joseph will be back, or at least a similar veteran type point guard, maybe at a cheaper rate. Now, if you'll just indulge me for five minutes at the end here, I don't have any more stats to talk about. I don't have any more roster uh, permutations, connotations, computations. Um, I don't have financial stuff to talk about. I'm just talking to you as a fan of the team. If there's any other Pistons fans listening, this, this bit's for you. This franchise has been tired for, you know, 13, 14 years now. Ever since that go to work era ended around, you know, the Billups trade for Allen Iverson in the late 2000s, this franchise has needed desperately to have someone come in, tear it down, and give it a facelift. The guys they drafted, you know, Greg Monroe, Brandon Knight, Yeah, Andre Drummond, Caldwell Pope, Luke Kennard, Henry Ellenson—you know those sorts of guys—they were viewed as fit pieces. Drummond was a a project, but everyone else was kind of the, you know, he fits what we're doing right now. And there was a sheer refusal from front office to recognize the team had reached the end of the the line, and the collection of talent that they had was only going to keep them in this. You know, in this mediocre cycle of the 8th, like pick 7 to 10 in the playoffs, or, you know, the occasional absolute ceiling of an 8th seed. Like, for example, in 2015, that's one of the most fun seasons I've had watching the Pistons, 15-16, where they played about as well as they could. They got career best years from guys like Reggie Jackson, from Contavious, Caldwell Pope. Andre Drummond was an all-star. They traded for Tobias Harris. Um, and they were a 44-win team. But instead of... And look, everyone's guilty of this, and hindsight is an amazing resource that we all have. But I think that the team thought that that was going to be... That that was the start of the peak, rather than the absolute peak itself. And the next year, they flailed. They ended up trading Tobias Harris for Blake Griffin and Griffin dragged his, dragged the play, uh, the franchise to the playoffs on his own before really, you know, th- he couldn't do it anymore. His body gave out on him being that guy. And I think why the reason why we've seen him so effective in Brooklyn is because he doesn't have to be that guy anymore. He's not always tired. He's not always, you know, taking 20 shots a game and bullying himself in the post, trying to create offense, you know, for a team that can't create its own offense. But as a fan of this team, this is the most excited I've been in my active life watching them. So I, in case anyone doesn't know, I'm, I'm 25 years old now. I started watching the team properly in the 2013-14 season after I finished high school, and I obviously had time during the day to watch the NBA because I can't really watch basketball games when I'm sitting in school. So I've been watching this team closely, you know, regularly, without just looking at box scores. Um, and occasional YouTube highlight packages so through about eight, nine seasons now. I think that maths is right. Yeah, this will be the ninth season. Um and yeah, this is the most excited I've been. Like we absolutely needed this as a franchise. You know it started last year, Troy Weaver coming in and putting a flamethrower to the bare bones of the roster that was left over from the previous regime. Dwayne Casey, while we all had our doubts about him, I think the fact that he is still there is a testament to his known ability around the league to work with young guys. You saw it in Toronto. It's the reason he brought in DeLon Wright to the, uh, Detroit when he was hired. And his track record with guys like Fred Van Fleet, with Patrick McCaw, with Jonas Valanciunas, uh, with OJ Ananobi. Translating that to the Pistons with Killian Hayes, Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, Saban Lee, Josh Jackson, Hamadou Diallo, hopefully Cade Cunningham. <laughs> it, it's the first time in 15 years, or in, at least in 10 years of me watching the team, that like the, the joy and the hope doesn't feel completely optimistic and misplaced and like absolute best case scenario. I still don't know if we'll make the playoffs next season but we finally have a young core of guys that is growing together, that is only scratching the surface of what they're capable of. We, we're not drafting guys anymore that have... Um, that pretty much are what they are, that are, you know, the, the NBA-ready guys, which is really just a cop-out for, you know, guys that don't really have much more growth in them. And as much as I love Luke Kennard, he was that type of pick. Like, he... He's a very good player and a very creative offensive player, very varied in his game. But he was never going to show too much more than the two years he did at Duke. And it really started with the drafting of Sekou Dumbuya, who was a holdover from the previous regime. But that was like the first swing for the fences pick that I think the Pistons had done in about seven years since they drafted Andre Drummond in 2012 you look at Milwaukee and obviously Giannis is a freak example but that was a guy that no one had heard of before they drafted him they took their chance on their guy and it's it's paying off for them and i'm not comparing the pistons young guys to what giannis is like i don't think they're going to become that but it's that same strategy of of you know of taking a gamble um you know stop bowing to the archetype well, sorry, the opposite of like what the league has become for so long. The Pistons tried to z- uh, to zig when everyone else was zagging. We saw it with Josh Smith playing small forward. God help us. We saw it with you know the the late Stan Van Gundy teams being really post heavy and ISO heavy with Reggie Jackson and Blake Griffin after they had pretty much sold their souls for the franchise, and we respect them for that, but they were cooked. The league has developed into athleticism, small ball, switchability, guys that can defend multiple positions, and shooting. And the Pistons have started to follow that trend rather than trying to be ahead of the next trend that hasn't occurred, that isn't happening. So I think finally the Pistons have stopped trying to be the smartest guy in the room. They've stopped trying to fit square pegs in round holes. And I'm just following with the blueprint of what's working around the league. You know, bringing in Sadiq Bey, who might be a bit older than the other two rookies last year, but he came in straight away and knew his role and performed. Taking a chance on Isaiah Stewart, who ended up being an all-rookie second-team player, who most people thought that was going to spend a lot of time in the G League, ended up proving that he is a starting quality NBA big man with, you know, inside and outside scoring potential an excellent rebounder, and shot-blocking defender. You take the chance on Killian Hayes. You you identify him as your point guard of the future. You know, he's obviously got the shooting concerns, but he's shown excellent playmaking abilities in the League, which is probably the second-best league in the world outside of the NBA. You know, he's played against grown men for years now, and you pair him with a bunch of track superstars like Josh Jackson, like Hamadou Diallo, And the shooting skills of guys like Sadiq Bey. And you really begin to build this young machine that can go grow together for four, five, six years that are all under cheap team control. You go chase guys like Jeremy Grant. You give them the chance to be the face of a franchise on the hope that they will have this exponential increase that they've shown in their skill and their potential. You know... It says a lot that Denver offered him the same deal, and he chose Detroit, not only because of the cultural aspects of the city and having a black coach and a black GM, but that belief in him to be the face of the franchise, and he is a prototype of the modern NBA, that guy that can defend three or four positions, can shoot the three, can create his own offense and get to the rim, and is just that hyper-athlete. And then you top it off by winning the lottery, which is ultimately a crapshoot, but you win it without overtly tanking and just a bunch of guys who probably aren't NBA players like the 2013 Philadelphia 76ers, like the Process Sixers, but you do it by trusting the young guys who you know are going to be part of your future, and you let them grow together, you let them make mistakes together, you don't pull them for making rookie mistakes because you know that it's going to pay off long term. You get the caveat, you get the cherry of the number one overall pick to add to that mix, and this is probably the most excited I've been for Detroit basketball in my entire life of actively watching the team. So thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Fence. I'm sorry if it's not what you're used to, or what you're after. I know that this, it's been a big day for me. I wanted to get something out about my NBA team finally, you know, having some good luck. And this is the brightest our future has looked in in, you know, in years, maybe not decades, that we have won three championships in the last 30 odd years. But, you know, the future is bright. We're finally catching up to the modern NBA. So thank you for listening. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Ben S. You can follow the website at Beyond T. Fence, um, obviously at beyondthefence.com.au. You can also subscribe to the podcast, leave it a like or a review on whatever platform you do. That's always much appreciated. And until then, I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening.